Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine platform. We are so happy to be back in flow with you after taking our little break. And up next is a pre-recorded interview that we did with Professor Anthony Michael Christ in anticipation of the Georgia indictments coming down. It's part of our Trump indictment series. And boy, does Professor Christ nail it. We were so happy to be in conversation with him. And everything that he predicts is exactly what we've learned in the last week. And so we're going to be getting back on the line with him again, but sit back and take a listen to this episode. And we are so happy to be in conversation with all of our listeners. We appreciate you all around the country and around the world as we continue this Trump indictment series and launch our back to school episode and review the Supreme Court's last term. So sit back, take a listen and we really appreciate each one of you. Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues platform at Ms. Magazine and Ms. Studios. And we count the minutes in our own feminist terms. And we jump right in on this show because we want to tackle the most compelling issues of our times and to get right to it with our guests. And so in this week's episode, we are continuing our series, unpacking the litigation and criminal charges that have been levied at the former president, Donald Trump. And we we call this the Trump indictment series. Now, the former president has been indicted again on additional counts from the Department of Justice, 37 felony counts for allegedly mishandling sensitive government materials and obstruction of justice. These were documents that were categorized as classified What's more, the former president faces an ongoing investigation into his role in interfering with the 2020 election results in Georgia, with prosecutors indicating that charges in this investigation could be coming sometime as early as August. And so what can Americans expect from these future rounds of potential charges, most specifically in this particular episode, thinking about the state of Georgia. And so helping me to sort this out is a person who has followed these issues closely in the state of Georgia, and that is Professor Anthony Michael Christ. He is a professor of law and political science at the Georgia State University, where his research examines the relationships between social change and the law, focusing on the interconnection between American political history and the development of law over time. I couldn't be more honored and pleased than to present you with our conversation. So sit back and take a close listen. Anthony, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is really a troubling time for our nation in many regards. We are just after, but with ongoing trials involving January 6th and the attack at our Capitol, the attempted coup insurrection that took place. And in the backdrop of that, we have both litigation and also criminal charges 
that have been levied against the former president, Donald Trump, it's anticipated that perhaps in the state of Georgia, the president may be indicted. The former president may be indicted. And I know you are following this closely. Can you tell us about what you're finding in Georgia? Yeah. So, so I think what we have to understand is that the evidentiary trail is pretty strong in Georgia in terms of how deeply involved the Trump campaign was in attempting to coerce state officials, to persuade state officials, to arm twist um, everybody from the Secretary of State to the Speaker of the House to the Governor uh, to to just thwart the will of the people of Georgia who voted for for Joe Biden. And, And I think what we're seeing um, is a really strong narrative that's being constructed by the district attorney here, at least from what we can tell, um, that shows that Donald Trump was almost singularly focused on Georgia. He just could not believe that he lost Georgia. Um, and that because he was so focused on it, that there was just this very robust effort uh, to overturn uh, the election here. And in many ways, the um, the kind of opposition to uh, the, the the real election results here in Georgia Kind of laid the predicate for January 6th to, to say, um, you know, or at least to, to argue that Congress had a duty to reject our elector, our, our um, electoral votes and, and the votes of other swing states. So I, I really, I think it's, you know, remains to be seen what had, what's been uncovered by the special purpose grand jury and the DA here, but we do know that she has a lot of information. So for our listeners who are abroad and elsewhere who may not be in the thick of what's happened in the United States, can you tell us a little bit about what seems to be alleged in terms of wrongdoing by the former president in Georgia? Yeah, so so there's a number of different strands of potential liability here um, from, from the 2020 election. So I think what everybody or most people are probably aware of is the phone call that Donald Trump made to the Secretary of State here in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, where he essentially demanded 11,000 votes and change in order to swing the election. And so there's an argument there that that alone uh, could constitute solicitation of election fraud. And to be to be very blunt, if I had done that or any other citizen in Georgia had done that, uh, they would have already been seeing a prison sentence, right? So that there's not a there's a strong claim that something criminal happened there. You're you're referring to that one, which that that recording, which many people heard all across the country and around the world, where the president, not for you know thirty seconds or a minute, but is really spending some time on the phone, trying to persuade uh, the Secretary of State at that time to give him essentially eleven thousand more votes. Right. Uh, I mean, essentially, Donald Trump said there's, there's no harm in recalculating. And by recalculating, he really meant um, fraudulently changing the voter tallies, which I'm I'm still not entirely certain how he thought or envisioned that would happen. Um, but it's still an unlawful thing to do to ask state official to to make a fraudulent election result entry. So that's kind of one bucket. Um, the other big question, I think, is in terms of the kind of harassment campaign that Donald Trump undertook of poll workers here in Fulton County. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of folks who watched the January 6th uh, hearings might be familiar, um, you know, with, with uh, Ruby and, and Shea Moss and um, the kind of harassment campaign that was undertaken to allege 
that they had done something criminal and stuffed ballots and the like, which is, of course, not true whatsoever. Um, so there's a claim, there's a potential claim there um, that they engage in, in some kind of unlawful harassment. Um, and there's also, I think, a, a broader claim that they uh, that Donald Trump and his allies um, attempted to just generally subvert um, the lawful administration of election. Um, now, I think the other thing that's different or important to note about the Georgia case is that it's not just about Donald Trump. Um, there is probably or possibly at least um, a conspiracy based charge, which might bring in other people like Rudy Giuliani or John Eastman um, or other kinds of folks who were central players um, in the uh, in the election re-election campaign. And of course, there's the the fake electors, right? The people who pretended that they were the the duly elected or the duly elected uh, uh, electoral college representatives from the state of Georgia in support of Donald Trump. So I don't think it's just going to be uh, charges against Donald Trump if charges do get brought get brought by the district attorney. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more defendants, and they will be defendants who many members of the American public and people around the world are familiar with. So with this, the pushback from the former president has been that in these cases where criminal charges are being brought uh, or pursued, that this is really a witch hunt against him, that this is a witch hunt that perhaps is rooted in racism. He's made references that in both Georgia and also New York, those prosecutors happen to be African-American, and there's been some innuendo around that. So what's your response to that, particularly given the fact that many of his followers, I mean, it's a very strong following, and right now is actually leading in the polls, at least from what we're able to gather amongst other Republican contenders. So pushback is this is about racism, or at least there's innuendo from the former president that that's what this is about. Yeah, I, so I, I think when we think about what happened in Georgia in 2020, we also have to put it somewhat in the light of, of history too. Um, right in Georgia, what we saw in 2020 was a remaking of a winning electoral coalition, a, a winning coalition that included black voters from Atlanta, um, suburban, often, you know, uh, uh, suburban voters who are white voters, but also a very diverse mix of voters um, and, and some voters from the exurban counties who are kind of traditionally Republican uh, voters come together and support not only Joe Biden, but we elected uh, Senator Warnock and we elected Senator Ossoff in that same cycle. Um, and that's a really tremendous change from the status quo from what Georgia had been kind of used to, which was, um, you know, white suburban voters voted for Republicans and Republicans always won. And so, um, you know, when I think about, for example, reconstruction, right, when you had a kind of really robust multiracial coalition win and, and, and exert political power, the first thing that that, uh, you know, white Southern redeemers always said was, oh, there's fraud, election fraud, election fraud. It can't possibly be that this coalition could, could have the amount of political sway that the, that the ballot tallies suggest that they actually do. And I think that's partially why Donald Trump for, for the entire 2020 uh, election season focused on Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit, right? And, and saying, look at this fraud, which was not there. Um, and so I think this narrative that, that there, that race is playing a part 
in in the prosecution or in the investigation. I mean, it's true because he believes it, right? I mean, in the sense that like part of the reason why he was so focused on Atlanta was because of his own racial grievances, right? So so I, it's it's really I think it's really kind of a fascinating um, insight into Donald Trump's psyche. I think it also is a really it's a very sad, but also not a unique or not, I should say, not a, a new phenomenon in American political history either. And I think that we really need to take kind of take all of that um, into account or you know, from a kind of 40,000 foot level view when we think about why why things happened the way they did, why the focus on Georgia, why was Donald Trump so, you know, just just in disbelief that he couldn't win, that he couldn't win Georgia, right? I mean, I think the fact that it's a deep southern state also played a part in this, this just utter disbelief um, and this entitlement that resulted, right? That the conversation that he had with Brad Ravensburger, um, right? He felt entitled to win, which is just, just so I, 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 it's hard for me to kind of understand or wrap my head around that. But I, but I think like his thinking around all that race is just so, you know, it's just an inextricable factor in his thinking. And so the fact that he's kind of, you know, kind of taking the reverse perspective now and saying, oh, well, you know, um, I'm only being investigated for this reason, that reason. I mean, it's 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 not a surprise given the background and given why or how we got to where we are with this investigation and, and the controversy surrounding the 2020 election. Well, it's interesting to think about how this also pans out, because I want to ask you about how do you think that this particular indictment will impact what or the other indictments are going to happen, impact what happens in Georgia, vice versa. But I do note that with speaking with Australian uh, media, you mentioned that, you know, you said you'll see, I think, in every step that he possibly can, the former president and his team will try to push this off as late as into 2024 or 2025, as long as they can, you mentioned. And so I do want to touch on that and then about, you know, how the other indictments will affect what takes place in Georgia. But is your sense that even though we've had the civil litigation involving E. Jean Carroll and a victory for her. She's now suing again, it looks like. Uh, and even though we've had indictment in New York, and then you've mentioned that possibly as early as August, perhaps we might be seeing something in, in Georgia. But for many of our listeners and people who are paying attention to this, they might think, well, this will be resolved soon. You get an indictment and that the trial starts it doesn't have to last into or begin a year or two later, but your sense is that this is going to begin, or at least he'll try to push this into later into 2024, 2025. Yeah. So, so I think it's very complicated in part because so, so right now we've got a kind of a placeholder date for the, the documents trial, which uh, Judge Cannon has set for now in mid August, August 14th. Now that's just not going to happen. Um, but it seems to me, right, that given how, you know, how many pretrial motions we'll probably see and the, the, the issues that generally surround national security matters and security clearances that need to be procured and all the rest, um, you know, there's no way that that trial is going to happen before mid 2024 anyway. And then we have the, the DOJ's considerations about well, what happens if Donald Trump is on his way or has secured the nomination. Uh, the Republican nomination for president, because then there's this precedent that, no, we don't want to engage in, in anything that might be seen as election uh, meddling or, or kind of interfering with, with the election process. So that becomes a whole problem. Uh, the, the trial in New York is currently set for late March. 
Um, you know, how do you how do you set numerous trials when Donald Trump, as every defendant truly has the right to, um, you know, needs the time to to create um, and to consult with lawyers and to make sure that, that he has a strong defense? Um, and then, of course, if you add additional indictments in coming in August, perhaps in Fulton County, right? How do you work that into the schedule, and and how do you kind of square all those different trials with the the political calendar as it heats up? In, in middle and late uh, 2024. So, you know, it's it's a it's a mess. And I, I don't envy anybody who's trying to figure out or predict how this is exactly going to play out. But I think what you'll see is Donald Trump make the argument that, well, we need we need time between all these trials and we can't have these trials in the middle of the, the political campaign season because that would be impermissible interference with that. Um, and, and so it's just going to stretch out longer and longer. And the final thing I would think, too, is um, he's really betting, perhaps, on the federal case that he can win the presidency again and then just essentially either pardon himself or order the Department of Justice to be done with it and and not bring the case forward anymore. He, of course, he can't do that in New York and he can't do that in Georgia because they're state trial, uh, you know, state level uh, cases. But but I think, you know, he's really betting on the, the political calendar being his his best friend in this entire process. Oh, that's very helpful, that response, because I was going to ask you, how do you think that the indictments will, in fact, impact the 2024 election cycle, uh, which is essentially already underway? Well, the polling doesn't really seem to suggest that there's a whole lot of movement, at least among uh, core Trump supporters in the primary uh, given the, the, the really strong accusations and allegations that have been made in the, the federal court, uh, the federal indictment. Um, what we do see in some of the polls is, is at least that there's uh, parts of the Republican electorate um, that aren't really core Trump supporters, but are probably right in the general election, push come to shove would be Trump supporters, that those voters do feel that these are serious allegations and, and do find them to be credible. Um, now that's important, but at the end of the day, you know, elections in the United States for the most part are binary choices, right? Because of the, the, the nature of our, of our political process. Um, and so how, how will those voters, you know, will they eventually come home to Donald Trump if Donald Trump becomes a Republican nominee? And, and when he's got 40, 45, 50, 55% of the, the vote, uh, you know, support in the primary, depending on what poll you look at, um, there's a pretty good high probability that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee, uh, barring some some major, uh, you know, major catastrophe or, or major change of events. And of course, he seems to be fundraising pretty well off of it uh, as well. So, um, you know, Donald Trump, I, I think one of his greatest assets in his political life has been to play the victim and to play the grievance card and to kind of tap into this idea that he's part of this besieged, um, increasing, you know, uh, you know, almost on the verge of becoming a minority. Um, and, and this feeds in that narrative. So it's, it's, you know, it's terrible if you really consider the, the, the possibility of Donald Trump going to jail if you're Donald Trump. Um, you know, but if you're looking at it from a purely political perspective, it's, it's kind of an, you know, an advantageous, um, you know, thing, uh, change in the, the dynamic for him. And that's part of the reason why he keeps going and doing these interviews. Wait, what, what sane person, to be frank, would be under indictment and under potential indictment in, in more jurisdictions 
and then go on Fox News and go on CNN and, and basically confess to crimes, right? It's because he thinks he can get away with it. And, and his ticket to getting away with it is securing the Republican nomination and hopefully, from his view, securing the White House again. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how it's going to play out with the electorate, but I certainly think or I think we can figure out from Donald Trump's be- behavior and his reaction in the, the post-indictment weeks um, or the past few weeks that um, he sees it as an advantage to some to some extent. You know, on this show, we always ask our guests about a silver lining. And to be honest, as host, it's it's hard to ask about ask that of you, um, given what we're we're talking about and the gravity of a conversation about indictments of a former president based on information that it's been publicly shared. I mean, the call that you mentioned, it's been heard around the world where the president is beg soliciting a, a eleven thousand more votes. Um, but I am wondering how we should be thinking about this in light of so many people concerned about our democracy. Are the indictments perhaps a response to fighting to make our nation a stronger democracy that even a former president can't be above the law? Yeah, so I I often think because in part I am I'm trained in political history as a political historian. I, I often think about these things in terms of political history. And I and 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 I think looking back, um, there's really two major points in American history where we did things wrong. Um, the the first one, the easier one to talk about, is is the pardoning of Richard Nixon by Gerald Ford. When I grew up in in you know, middle school and high school, the kind of I guess the the bottom line was always, oh, that what a great thing for the country that he tried to help the, heal the nation, and um, you know Gerald Ford was really. Uh, willing to take that political hit possibly in order to to make sure that we can move on. Um, and that sounded great until we realized that, no, what it really did was just give a permission slip to people like Donald Trump to go and do terrible things while in office and believe that they could get away with it because that they were, in fact, above the law. So I, I think that there is some, there's, there's some, um, I think, improvement on or, you know, movement away from that narrative um, and, and, a, and a new lesson might be being forged in, you know, as we speak, that might be very much uh, beneficial to, to our democracy. And the second point or the second part of American history that I often think about more often than anything else is Reconstruction. And, you know, so often Reconstruction, South Carolina and Louisiana, North Carolina, and Virginia, um, folks got away with election denialism and using election den- denialism to foment uh, racial violence and to um, to stoke broad political distrust and political violence. And, and they got away with it. Um, and the promise of reconstruction was lost in large part because there was no, nobody had to answer for their misdeeds. Um, and and so I, I think that there's a lesson to be brought from, from that era too, where um, you know, the violence that occurred on January 6th, which was a direct result of the kind of election denialism and the, and, you know, truly the, the racially based, um, you know, kind of grievances that fueled that election denialism, um, that if we are going to be a healthier society and to move on, um, and to, to grow from this very dangerous moment, that people have to be held to account for, for their wrongdoings. And so, 
I, I would hope that these indictments speak to that. Um, but it's really hard to say because at the end of the day, we might have indictments, but indictments only go as far as the evidence takes us and as far as, an, as a, you know, potentially a, a conviction will, will get us, right? If, if somebody gets, uh, is able to, to kind of just walk away from all this and say, yeah, um, you know, that, that was an unfortunate few weeks, but I'm not really going to suffer any long-term consequences. Then, then I'm not sure if we, we've achieved much. So that's a really open question. And it's one that, um, you know, I'm both hopeful for, but it's, it's, I'm very anxious about, uh, the state of our democracy and, and how this plays into that going forward. I want to thank you, Professor Anthony Michael Christ. Thank you so much for joining us at Ms. Magazine and Ms. Studios for a really important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons can not be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever it is that you receive your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at ontheissues at MsMagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.